My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Happy 2023, everyone. And on this episode, we share a conversation with actor, producer, and author, Cal Penn. Stay tuned. So 2023 is upon us, and Happy New Year to everyone. Let's make it wonderful. And speaking of wonderful, thank you so much for listening to this and for sharing it with your friends and family, for rating, downloading, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydarndikar. I've been definitely thinking a lot lately about how we can sometimes live in many multiverses, and perhaps each parallel or serial iteration is another step in our journey towards self-awareness. I found it equally important to savor the idiosyncrasies and imperfections of each version in an effort to find peace, humor, and motivation. In fact, Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing was frankly born out of my own musings over life's surprises, discovering who we are and who else is out there, the incredible ridiculousness of it all, the comforting and motivating moments, the answers, and equally important, the questions. So I was grateful to chat with someone capturing all of this beautifully and thoughtfully through art, humor, public discourse, and self-expression, the very talented Kalpen Modi, who's also known as Cal Penn. Cal is originally from New Jersey, born in Gujarati immigrant parents, and studied film and sociology at UCLA. His acting talents emerged through film roles in Van Wilder, the Harold and Kumar series, and The Namesake, and continue to blossom over the years in roles on television and movies like Superman Returns, House, Designated Survivor, and Sunnyside, the patriotic immigration sitcom that he co-created for NBC. Now in Cal's multiverse, the call of public service was also strong, as he served as an associate director of the White House Office of Public Engagement, serving as President Obama's liaison to young Americans, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, and the arts community. He made numerous contributions on a range of issues and committees and served as co-chair for the Obama-Biden re-election campaign in 2012. But perhaps the best window for many into Cal's world came from his book, You Can't Be Serious, a memoir which became a national bestseller in 2021 and was released on paperback this past summer. He offers a heartfelt and refreshing account of his journey growing up, getting through the brown catch-22 of Hollywood, serving his country, and meeting his future husband, all through his personal tone of storytelling that's intelligent, candid, invitingly awkward, and of course, very funny. This past year, among his many credits, he helped produce and appear in Hot Mess Holiday and played Miku in the animated Mira Royal Detective. Recently, he's acted on Disney Plus's The Santa Clauses and is set to serve as a guest host on The Daily Show. Now, we caught up recently to chat about it all, but it was important to me well, to start things off properly. Let's actually do this properly. Let's start off a little bit better than that. Game cho, Kalpen. Oh, game cho, Tame. You know, so how many podcasts have you been on where we're starting off all brown and Guju like that? Uh, I mean, brown, there are several, but Guju, this is probably the first. That the yeah. first? Okay. Well, it's the first with a proper game cho, you know. I appreciate that. And not being Guju myself, uh, hopefully I'd nailed that one. You did, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know. I actually had Sean Desai, who's uh, uh, used to be the defensive coordinator for the Chicago Bears, and now he's a defensive coach for for the Seattle Seahawks. And 
I, I tried desperately to see if he could do some sort of like defensive call at the line, like the game show weak side safety blitz or something. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, no one's going to ever see that coming. So. Right, right. Totally. What do you say? <laughs> yeah, he. I don't think that went very far. So. Okay, sure. You know, I've, I've asked this to others, but in your head, when you hear someone say game show or speak in Gujarati or call you Kalpen, do you think or respond differently, perhaps? Um, I mean, if you're talking about like an auntie yelling at me in Gujarati, yes, of course. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> you might be thinking and running at the same time. Yeah, right? yeah, right, right. I think what's interesting about that question is, you know, if, if uh, for folks who are, are bilingual or or, or more, um, you know, you, you think and dream and all of those things in multiple languages. And so if I'm like, if I'm only speaking Gujarati for a prolonged period of time, then you're thinking in Gujarati and all of that. So, so the answer to that question is sort of depends on the scenario. Yeah. But otherwise, no, because I guess, you know, you, you sort of switch back and forth between languages. What's interesting to me, English was my first language, yeah. but then there are some words that I don't know because I've never heard them in English. Right. <laughs> it's like, 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 okay, there's, or there are just no words in English for words that there are in Gujarati, like Asansi. Yeah. Asansi is a, um, in English, it's tongs, I guess, but it's not really tongs because right. it's a specific type of stainless steel tong that's used to lift a pot that, that has a lip on it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So that's a sonnacy, but there's no like, look at all those English words I had to use to describe what a, what a sonnacy is. Anyway, so um, a very long-winded way to answer your question, but I guess it just depends on sometimes, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, like, we probably grew up in, in, gen, in a generation where just code switching was just the norm. And I wonder if it depends on the context. Like, if you were at work and all of a sudden someone who you didn't expect said, hey, Kalpen, how about getting me that Sanchi over there? Um, you know, you might you might sort of take be taken aback a little bit. I'm imagining. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, I guess it depends. Like, right? Like, you sort of rarely hear Gujarati spoken in the workplace, anyway. So, if yeah, I haven't really been in that situation. It's interesting. Interesting question. Yeah. And I wonder, if, by the way, if, if that code switching is just inevitable, especially like you know, toggling back with your family when you're in school, when you're at work that you're, you're probably baked, it's baked into you to, to code switch. I, I mean, look, in, in my case, I, 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 my background was a little bit different in that I grew up in a fairly, I, I call it like, um, the town was white diverse. Yeah. Meaning that, you know, a lot of kids spoke different languages at home. It was a lot of, a lot of Jewish families, a lot of Polish and Italian families. So the idea that you were bilingual was not as different just because plenty of people had that home experience. Um, I just think it, I remember not code switching per se, but just not wanting to have to explain everything. Do you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, I do. Oh, what were you, what were you speaking? What were you saying? I'm like, just shut up, man. We weren't talking about you. I promise you, we weren't talking about you. My God, the arrogance. So I think it's just more more than that. It comes from that place, and I think about this often. I, I wrote a book, the subtext of which is yeah. how systems can and do change over time. And one of the things that I, I realize now as an adult, you know, if if I'm creating a show or if I'm producing something and have the ability to hire a team, the team organically is diverse, just because I think that creates better product. Yeah. But 
But within that, it's also so refreshing that you don't have to explain yourself, right? You're in a diverse writer's room. And if a large number of those very funny, overly qualified writers also happen to come from immigrant families, then there are just some things that you don't have to explain when you walk into the room. And that's really refreshing and certainly not something you have as a kid, no matter how diverse your town is. Right. Uh, And it's only because you don't want to have to explain yourself because it's exhausting, you know? Well, I think that subtext for people that they can relate to it a little bit easier. There's always that, you know, better understanding. Your your book was released on paperback this summer. Congratulations for that. Thank you. I kind of love the the transparency, the tone, the genuine intimacy of the book. It was a really, you know, just wonderful read. Did did that task of writing at all accelerate that kind of intimacy and that maybe that sense of vulnerability in you? Or, or has that always kind of also been baked into some of your skills as a storyteller? Uh, it's an interesting question because this is the first thing that I've written that wasn't fiction. So I usually yeah. write sketches or, you know, it's it's absurd characters. So sure. things that are not necessarily personal in any way, right? You're playing another yeah. character, you're writing a different human and it can go in any direction. And I remember when I, I pitched the book to the the publisher and the editor who, who ended up uh, buying it. And and then you start the writing process. The way I pitched it was, you know, I'd like it to be um, a book for the 25-year-old version of me, right? A, a, a yeah. person who um, had these barriers to entry and was trying to do a bunch of different things at once. Also, it's for anybody out there who has more than one path in life yeah. and doesn't feel like life should be made up of mutually exclusive choices. It was all of that. But all of that was through the confines of like, I want it to be funny. I want it to be the kind of book that, yes, you learn from. I want professors to be able to assign it for the merits. It's going to be well-researched, but it also needs to have like enough sophomoric dumb humor that you can read it at the beach when you're on vacation. (laughs) And so I turn in the first draft and the editor is like, yo, this is really dark. A lot of this is so dark. Why is it so dark? You said it was going to be funny. And I realized so many of these stories that I'd shared with friends over a beer, when you put them on paper and it's just you and your computer, you filter out, at least for me, you filter out the storytelling part of it. So then the second draft was when I, I kind of put a lot of that stuff in. So when you, when you ask about vulnerability, it's interesting. So many of the early stories, I write a lot in the book about um, uh, barriers to entry in the entertainment industry. Um, And the reason I do, and I cite specific examples of shows and producers who had just been terribly racist and and how, you know, if you're a performer of color, they would just tell you to your face why you're not getting hired. And that was the reason. Right. By the way, it's too bad because you're so good. Yeah. Like, thanks. Yeah. So, but the reason that I tell those stories is I'm, I love what I do for a living. And it's so exciting to see how Hollywood, like many other industries has changed so much just in the last 10 years alone. So that's the reason the stories are in the book, but in writing them, for me, the vulnerability was also, you know, I would hate for a reader to, to read this and say, okay, I know he didn't specifically name the name of that executive or producer, right. but right. I'm going to go on IMDb and yeah. figure out who that is and blow that person's spot up. To me, that would yeah. be a real shame because the point of telling these stories is to talk about how systemic racism works, how yeah. barriers to entry systemically work, how we can change those systems for the better and how we do have agency over that. So the vulnerability to me was, am I creating a distraction that yeah. would be great for social media, but not really good for the story that I'm trying to tell? And so weaving that thread was uh, a little bit of a tricky one. I'm very proud with uh, about how that turned out, because I think yeah. people 
who've read the book understand what you know what it means and of course you can imdb the people it's not a big secret but <laughs> the point of writing it was not that the point of writing it was to talk about the the next steps after things like that so so two things with that i mean yeah. first off have you actually had professors put that into their curriculum and no, then, not yet. What's the problem? Yet. How do I make this happen? <laughs> <laughs> let's let's do that part. Uh, and then second off, you know, is it for that matter easier for someone who has broken through from the outside with that with the success you've had to tell that story versus someone who's going through that? Perhaps is there a different lens that you have now retrospectively saying, "Hey, look, you know, I can share this much easier now," or for that matter, you have maybe some licensure to to share that versus someone who might actually be in it. Yeah, for, well, I mean that's part of part of the reason that I share those stories, and it's it's not just for the you know the person who's in their twenties who's dealing with early career uh, barriers to entry or anything like that. I mean, of, of course, it, it is if you're an actor, great. But whatever your yeah. whatever your field is, it, it's sort of the the point was several fold. One, what what any of us who were coming up fifteen years ago dealt with, thankfully, is not the exact same thing of what you're dealing with now. But there are parallels, and, and I think that context is helpful. If for no other reason, you know, uh, this is such an overused phrase, thankfully, these days, but like the shoulders that I stand on are yeah. people in the, uh, in the entertainment world who happen to be South Asian and, and many other backgrounds. But many of them are people whose names we might never know as household names, not because they didn't right. go to drama school or because they're not talented, but because the opportunities that they had didn't exist. And... I was privileged enough to have certain opportunities they never had, but without their encouragement and the things that they did, I wouldn't have had those, right? Yeah, they they were almost the ladders that that really. Yes, like, of course, a hundred percent, they were. Yeah, my my hope is yes. If if uh, if somebody's going through something, and I've had people slide into DMs saying exactly what you're asking, yeah, which yeah. is like, hey, thank you for writing this chapter. It made me feel a little less alone because I'm the only. XYZ in my company. And I know, you know, that it, it's tough for the following reasons that you articulated and there was nobody who seemed to understand that. Like, great, you know, or Fantastic. it's, yeah. or even the opposite where it's like, Hey, I'm in, uh, I'm an Indian engineer. My company is all Brown people. That's crazy that you, you guys in the entertainment or political world experience all of this. We had no idea, right? Literally yeah. the opposite take. Yeah. And I think that's helpful too. So, yeah. Well, and, and hopefully there are people who maybe feel that reading that uh, is the passport for them to actually share their own stories, sure. whether that's actually, you know, through a, a DM sliding to you or, mm. or actually in their own uh, world, or for that matter, the people who are in some ways kind of part of that systemic or structural yeah. racism architecture, and, and now hopefully poised to, to tear that down. Yeah. You talk about in the book about this epiphany moment, which is actually kind of cool, the confluence of watching Mississippi Masala and then, you know, sort of performing in the whiz that served as that yeah. sort of ignition point um, for yeah. you. Uh, in, in reflecting on it now, does that, does some version or proxy of that strange kind of combination of theatrical acumen and sort of appropriate representation, does that still resonate and motivate you, you know, even now? You know, the, um, the idea of representation mattering it's something that uh, it's the type of thing that I think if you grew up seeing people who look like you regularly on screen, then of course it's natural for you to probably be like, what's the big deal? I don't understand why that matters. And the only way that I can sort of explain it is 
if you don't see characters who look like you, you sort of feel like your opportunities in the world might be limited. And to me, there's a, a great media theorist named Peter Fang, whose work I really enjoy. And he, um, in one of his books, talks about how you know it's, it's problematic to talk about representation through only the lens of whether something is positive or negative. Mm. Because who is the arbiter of whether something is positive or negative, right? It, it, it's dehumanizing to suggest that things can only be positive or negative because most of us as humans have this very flawed, fleshed out life. And so Mississippi Masala, this Mira Nair film, was the first time I saw brown characters who A, looked like me on screen, but were flawed. And, yeah. you know, the families had problems and they were racist and they made love and they loved each other and they were yeah. funny and all of that. So when I have this conversation with folks who maybe grew up seeing themselves all the time, like, you know, your opportunities seem limited because you don't get the full breadth of the human experience. And so that's what I remember experiencing as a kid when I didn't see any people who looked like me on screen unless they were cartoon characters voiced by white actors um, or if they were folks in brownface, or if they were sort of one note characters whose entire motivation when they appeared on screen was tied to their ethnicity, which yeah. obviously is not how any of us live our lives. So, so in that sense, what's exciting to me is that there is so much better writing and content and all of that stuff out there now yeah. that it doesn't just have to be, oh, here's somebody who looks like me. I'm going to watch this, you know? You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Cal Penn. Stay tuned. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians, so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. What up, it's your boy Humble the Poet, author, creative, artist, person on their journey, and you are listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, Abe Dandekar. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and let's rejoin our conversation now with Cal Penn. I guess, you know, in some ways, now that there's much more depth and nuance, and for that matter, content out there, does the representation piece, does that motivate you even more to say, hey, I'm just not going to, you know, portray a character or a role or write a book that's going to resonate with someone, but I want more of that. I actually want to make sure that there's even more like nuance, more depth, more content that's actually out there. I, mean, I think that's that's always been something that's important to me. I think it's, it's yeah. just it has been a question of whether I'm whether I have the agency within a particular project to help make those decisions. So it wasn't until I started producing or writing my own stuff that, you know, you can say, wait, I can fill this writer's room with exactly who I want and make sure the content holds up. So, so I think it's, you know, it, it's something I'm, I'm certainly mindful of, but it's also something I think many of us have always been mindful of. It's just that now is the time where that's, that's possible, which is exciting. Also, I just got to give a shout out in terms of the representation piece. Sorry, I, I don't want to be too long winded, but no, you're um, okay. <laughs> there are also like, there are at least two big reality shows with brown folks. There's matchmaking, Indian matchmaking on Netflix. And then my favorite family karma on Bravo, which I don't know if you watch it, but it's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, I even hearing like, I don't know why that show isn't blowing up 
completely in every Brown household. Like, is this not the moment of arrival? I understand we want like, okay, who won the Oscar? Who won the Grammy? Yeah. You have a Bravo reality show community. Like, this is amazing. Yeah, and not just in the Brown household, right? I mean, like, you know, it's resonating with hopefully just about everyone. Yeah, well, th- that's the point of all these shows is you, wanna, you want it to be relatable to everybody, yeah. You, you talk um, a lot about the sort of Brown Catch-22 in, in yeah. the space that you're in, right? Maybe you can describe it to those who probably have never heard that term before or just briefly, like, if they're completely naive to that, because it probably yeah. is very similar to other spaces. It, it, yeah, it definitely is. So in the, in the book, in the audiobook, I, I coined this phrase, the Brown Catch-22, which uh, essentially was as follows. So when you're starting out as an actor, and I know it's the same in, in many professions, in our case, you, know, you weren't allowed to audition for bigger parts. This, this goes for any actor, by the way. You've know, you, you got to build up a resume. You can't walk in and audition for the lead in a movie, with rare exception. Um, you got to build up your resume, just like in any job, except... The problem was the barrier to entry for brown actors was you have to play these stereotypical one note, usually one or two line parts, the only existence of which is based on a stereotype related to ethnicity or religion. So A, obviously dehumanizing, but B, really fucking boring, to be honest yeah. with you. Like as an artist, just boring, right? Right. So I'm more offended at how boring this is than I am at the, the the racism, okay? But you take those jobs, and but you can't even get those jobs unless you've taken those jobs. Yeah. And so this idea that to graduate beyond that, and then you get bigger and bigger jobs that also tended to be fairly stereotypical back in the day, but you do it with the hopes that you're building up a resume that then justifies to somebody why you should be allowed to break out of that mold. But in, in my experience, if you hadn't done that, you would not have had the chance to, to graduate beyond that. And the case in point, I, I describe in a lot more detail, obviously, in the, in the audiobook, but this movie, Van Wilder, that I did with Ryan Reynolds back in yeah. the day, had a great time doing it. Ryan was sure. fantastic. Tara Reid was wonderful. But the, the name of the character I played is Taj Mahal, okay? Like, right, right. It's, it was the <laughs> yeah. long duck dong of, yeah. of that era. And had I not played that part, I would not have had the chance to, I, I, I think, get the job in Harold and Camargo to White Castle because... There was no shortage of actors to play the parts that John Cho and I ultimately played, but there were relatively few who had a studio film credit on their resumes. And I yeah. know that at least for New Line and Warner Brothers, it was an asset to them that I had the chops and the experience. So they knew that they were hiring somebody who who, who had proven that they could do that, that job. So, And had I not done Harold and Camargo to White Castle, I would not have had the chance to do the namesake with Mira Nair, yeah, who inspired me when I saw Mississippi Masala as a kid. So the Brown Catch-22 is also like you do it without any guarantee that it'll lead to the ability to graduate into what you actually want to do. And for a lot of folks, obviously, they're, it's, a, it's a cycle. And for many others, to be completely fair, they, they always chose to refuse those stereotypical parts. And they're yeah. doing just fine for themselves. Yeah. So, yeah. so this, while this is my story, I'm certainly, uh, it's certainly not everybody's story. And I think that's important to point out, too. I'm struck by one thing as a comment and the other is just sort of a follow-up to that. Like, you know, when I think about, you use the word dehumanize and it's one of the critical elements when people face burnout, that they feel dehumanized. And so like the repetitive dehumanization of someone in their, in the workspace is uh, one of the key ingredients for burnout. We see this in, in position, the workplace uh, all the time. 
and I wonder if, if that at all is resonant for particularly people who are in some ways forced to choose some of those roles. And then the other one is, I wonder if, if it's literally just power in the industry, which brings us closer to sort of solving that problem, that brown catch-22. Is it merely the power to be able to eradicate the, that as being the only ladder to ex- accelerate your career? Yeah, I, I don't, just to be clear, I mean, while while these barriers to entry obviously still exist, I think they, they don't exist in that binary way anymore. Part of sure. the reason is that there's, the, A, audiences have changed, right? I think streaming yeah. platforms have been a great equalizer because they're largely not advertising-driven models, which means that those programming execs can take perceived business risks in making diverse content. But hey, guess what? Audiences of all backgrounds want to see characters they've never seen before. And so as long as the writing's good, they'll watch it. So so that's been a big plus and has broken down a lot of barriers to performers of color. The other piece of it is just the straight up technology. Like there was no YouTube when I was 19, you know? And so the the idea that like you're a you're a kid who's interested in writing or filmmaking, there's like 19 different apps you can use to see if it's any good. Like set up a TikTok account and just see if what you're doing is funny. Set up a YouTube channel and see if people like what they're watching. It's 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 a great way to sort of get started. And that that was not something that we had access to. So I think the technology alone across the board is a wonderful equalizer. And then there are executives and casting directors and producers and directors who are who are there now and are really pulling folks up. I mean, look at like look at Mindy Kaling and Lily Singh yeah. and Priyanka sure. and all these folks. It's really great. No, I think the idea that there's so much more of a democratized environment, right? That yeah. like people have great vehicles for this. And, and I, I've always wondered whether one answer is to simply just because of that democratization to produce and you know build more independently, that there's such a compelling brown product or Indian product. I mean, in some ways, just like the sort of like K-pop or J-pop solution where there's just this waterfall of all brown storytelling and you know, other kinds of media that it's simply just hard to ignore for the consumer. Sure. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, th- this the reason I'm hesitating is that I was waiting for a lot of times th- these sorts of conversations walk right up to the line of, so have we arrived now? So now we've arrived, right? Right. And, no, I, just, and, and... I don't feel like that's a, because that was a conversation that I remember people had when Aishwarya Rai was on Oprah. They're like, right. well, now we've arrived. Right. Yeah. Like, what are yeah. these arbitrary benchmarks? Where, there's no, like... There's no one knows what that means. But, like, nobody knows what that means. And also, those yeah. of us who work in this industry, it's yeah. not a one-off, man. Like, we're trying right. to build careers here, right? Right. Totally. So I, I do think, yes, it's you... Like, if you're looking for specifically South Asian content, it's there and you can find it. But yeah. to me, what's more interesting is the content that's created for everybody is accessible to everyone and also happens to be organically diverse. I think that's a that's a great thing because what I love about what I do is the shared human experience of making right. somebody laugh, especially if they're in a demographic that they never thought they would enjoy a character that I'm playing, right? Right. But they are enjoying it. Like, that's the kind of stuff you, you really love. Maybe that's the... Um... I have to tell you, by the way, you must really love the holidays because with Hot Mess Holiday last year and the Santa Clauses yeah. this year, yeah. that probably is a good <laughs> reflection of that, right? I mean, like people looking at char- at your characters and seeing like some kind of resonance there that makes them smile or yeah, gives them at least so. you know, some pause. 
I hope so. I mean, look, and, and I'm playing the evil guy in the Santa Claus, right. so that's even <laughs> even more fun. There you go. You know, you you wrote about inspiration from Mira Nair and and sort of guidance from uh, Sonia Nicore. How comfortable have you felt in this role for others now, sort of serving as a as a mentor or even a lighthouse in the industry? It's very kind of you to say. I, you know, I think you never think of yourself in this way, and then there are sometimes. I mean, look, the, there are stories in the book that I told also for this reason, where there was no, there was no book or manual or even really that many people I could call to say, how do I navigate this, this thing, you know, and uh, Sonia Nicor, who for folks listening don't know, she, uh, at the time that I was writing about was the only uh, South Asian TV executive in, in Hollywood. And I had a general meeting with her. I really had no business meeting her. I had just graduated from UCLA, but she met with me because she wanted to sort of be encouraging. And she said, if I can ever be helpful, give me a call. And I ended up calling her when I booked the job as Taj Mahal in Van Wilder, just to sort of talk through, will this actually help my career? And and she said, yes, I, I can't yeah. bring you in for a project, but but if you have a film credit on your resume, I could. And, and so things have changed so much since then. But what's really exciting to me is when a lot of sort of younger actors will call, the conversations are so dynamic. Like the advice is not just the race advice, man. Yeah. It's like, hey, am I getting screwed in this deal that I'm about to sign? Right, like it's real right. it's real business stuff that you just because we know each other, we happen to talk about. So to me that's another yet another benchmark of progress that the 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 advice, as it were, is not just the ethnicity stuff or how to navigate barriers to entry. It's it's some of the other pieces as well. And I wonder if if for you that role is not only facilitating the mutual trust that has to exist right in those folks coming up with you but then even for yourself like as you find yourself these conversations are evolving they're not just about <clears throat> the ethnicity it does yeah, actually right. get into more of the business mode does that become a, a kind of source of pride and almost confidence for you as you go forward i don't know if i've thought about it that way i mean the source of pride or just happiness in general is I, if you had asked me 15 years ago would i have thought that there would be all of this content out there all of these incredible actors, writers, executives, directors, all of, all of that, I w- would have said, no, that's crazy. There's, that's obviously not going to happen. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, that's, that's incredibly exciting. And I also think what's cool is that I lecture a lot at colleges and inevitably there are, A, just a, a wider array of Asian Americans majoring in other things other than the sciences. Not that there's anything wrong with that doctor. No, but I, I got you. Know, you. But, yeah. but but it's nice that it that it's sort of expanded. But then it also in, introduces these conversations of like you know someone will raise their hand and say, um, you know, hey, I, I really want to be a dancer or an actor right. or some sort of an artist, but I I can't convince my parents to let me. Do you have any advice? And I'll say, well, what's what's your major? Like I'm a pre med major. Like okay, yep. so just consider that maybe you don't actually want to be an artist, right? Just consider yep. that for a minute. I'm not discouraging you. But what I'm saying is the things you're going to have to fight for if you want to be an artist, the tough conversations with producers who don't want to hire you. And by the way, not just because of what you look like, but any number of reasons why it's a competitive field, right? Sure. Those conversations are going to be way tougher than the conversation with your parents about what you want to major in. Yeah. And I don't know your parents, so obviously take that for what it is. But but I'm going to guess that whatever those barriers to entry are are going to be tougher 
So if you're not ready to have the conversation with the parents, you probably don't want to be an artist badly enough, but you like the idea of it. And you should do it as a hobby. I sound like an uncle now. You should do it as a hobby. You should do it on the side, you know? Yeah. But the reason I'm excited about those types of conversations is the people who do choose to pursue it as a career do it with the same seriousness that our community knows we require of doctors, engineers, astrophysicists, any other profession that we know how to handle. We're now understanding that you do need to study it. You do need to dedicate yourself to it. These are professions and jobs and careers just like any other. And that, that also wasn't something that I think we had 15, 20 years ago, just because of the nature of the immigration patterns. Is this the natural next step for you to evolve into Tapu Uncle in the emerald green, <laughs> emerald green Mercedes with your car phone? Is that what's happening here? Or... I still take the subway and uh, <laughs> I, I don't have an emerald green Mercedes, but... Um, might be close yeah. i don't know uh, yeah, no but right. you know i mean that that idea that like you share these conversations and they come naturally i mean i just wonder if this is kind of the natural part of gracefully aging and maturing in just about any setting that you're in especially if you've had the experiences that you've had you know i wonder if that comes as a natural for you it's, at least mm. it sounds like it does yeah i, I mean that's uh i don't really know how to answer that because i haven't thought about that you know <laughs> You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Cal Penn. Stay tuned. Every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, this is Madhuri Dixit, and you are listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dandekar. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and let's rejoin our conversation now with Cal Penn. I, I wanted to ask you something slightly different. You've had a yeah. front row seat to this, obviously, but if President Biden called you today and asked you, what does it feel like to be an Indian American or a South Asian American? And what would you tell him? I'd probably be like, what, I'm not allowed to have opinions on anything else? <laughs> no. Right? Because isn't that interesting? This is like, I, I think Margaret Cho had this really funny quote about how, I mean, this was like in the 90s, which is like, anytime North Korea does something crazy, like cable news will call to see if I'll come on. Yeah. And she's like, you know, I have opinions on things besides what North Korea is doing. <laughs> So it's always funny, but but no, I think look, the the those conversations are obviously incredibly important, especially when different communities are are talking about things like violent crime or hate crimes, when yeah. there are health health and language and economic disparities even within the South Asian community, right? The immigration Absolutely. patterns, the the background of of various subgroups is so different. So I think those would be the conversations to have, and I'm I'm giving you sort of a, a nerdy but truthful answer. When I worked in the Obama Biden administration, one of my jobs was outreach to the Asian American Pacific Islander community. And so I, I know that President Biden and, and at that time, President Obama were very well aware of all of these different tiers of wanting to make sure that everybody has a seat at the table. Um, so I feel like the conversation would be about that. You know, it, it would be less macro. Hey, Cal, how does it feel today compared to 20 years ago? I'd be like, well, sir, here's my book. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah. But if we want to talk about sort of the the in the weed stuff, I think that's what's interesting. And I think the yeah. the current administration is doing a, a great job at all that as well. 
people are always drawn to you and others for, for a variety of reasons. I mean, for you, for your performances, for your persona, for, you know, as an Indian American, as a gay engaged man, as a Hindu, and the many more that I haven't even used here, right? I mean, are, are all these descriptors critically important? But do they also inevitably, are they inevitably unfortunate when you're trying to unify these tribes uh, and these communities around some kind of American story? And and maybe not describing the question very well, but, you know, I, I, I think that we all have these sort of descriptors in our lives and, and we gravitate towards, you know, communities uh, that fit those descriptors. But, you know, does that also in some ways kind of push us into these communities and, and put these silos there without kind of unifying us as, as one sort of big giant American community or an American yeah, I, story? I think I'm the wrong person. Does that make sense, person. by the way? It makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. The reason I think I'm the wrong person to answer that is I don't think that my answer is probably the answer that a lot of people would give you. And I think part of it goes back to like the, the town that I grew up in, right? So I was not the kid who felt like he had one foot in two different worlds, right? Sure. I just sort of felt like, yeah, I'm bilingual. We speak English in Gujarati at home. I speak English at school. All of the cultural stuff that I think a lot of people felt like they had to pick between as a kid, I, I didn't necessarily feel that way because I just sort of felt like, well, this is what it means to be American. Right. Like, this, is, this is what it is, right? I think the other reason that I, that I don't think of identity in that way is it was the South Asian community that was the most discouraging when I wanted to pursue a career in the arts. Sure. Right. And so it was, I would hear from aunties and uncles, I would hear things like, what do you mean you want to major in theater? We don't do that. We're Indian. As if right. being Indian somehow meant you can't be an artist. What was crazier was then at UCLA as an undergrad, it was other South Asian students at UCLA, my peers, who would say the same thing. Yeah. They would say like, oh, you're such a sellout. You're not really Indian because you're you're pursuing the arts. I'm like, what is wrong with these people, right? So in my case, it was the opposite of, I think, part of the question that you're asking, where sure. I didn't feel like I was being siloed based on any sort of identity. I felt like if there was siloing happening, it was by these communities who didn't want to claim ownership of me. Right. But again, I, I, you know, I laugh about it now, and there, it had been frustrating as a kid, but I just sort of never viewed my identity or, or our place in our amazing country through that lens because everyone is from somewhere and, and we're, you know, it's not a monolith and that's exciting. You know, but I, I'll even, I'll extend this a bit further, even into politics. You know, it, it, um, I, I remember getting into some pretty heated debates with, with some other friends, both Brown and not about um, Indian Republicans. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. the, uh, the two most prominent that I can think of right now are, are uh, Bobby Jindal and, and Nikki Haley, two governors of deeply conservative states. Obviously, I would disagree with their politics vehemently. But when I hear people say, oh, Governor Jindal, what a sellout. My first thought is, who the hell are you to yeah. suggest that the governor of Louisiana should have a loyalty to your ethnicity or your party? Or your party, right. But yeah. I mean, the, that idea is so ludicrous to me that why do you get to be the arbiter of someone's ethnicity when they are an elected conservative Republican from a deeply conservative red state like Louisiana? It's just, it's so silly. So 
to me, it's it's an extension of the same thing. It's like we, yeah. I'm not saying you got to like the guy. I'm not saying you even have to respectfully disagree with him. But can we just stop short of the silly? I'm gonna deny you some identity nonsense. That just to me, it's it screams immaturity, um, and I just also don't find it helpful. Sorry, that's a a big extension from your. No, question, I, I, I actually that, appreciate you know. that because I I wonder if you know because people take those identity tags. And they do exactly what you just said, which is like, you know, that person's a sellout. They don't belong to my tribe. And yeah. I'm going to basically like, you know, not acknowledge their their capacity. Right. And, and how, how do we basically get away with that? Not just in the brown community. I mean, like, you know, putting tags on people I, in, you know, it's just unfortunate. I know. Way. I mean, well, this, this is what's what's really funny is I'm like, y- y'all realize like you can knock on Bobby Jindal for being a bad governor. Like a bad person. And, and, and perhaps you should. <laughs> right, um, like reg- with regressive policies. That's right. what you should go after him for, for his policies, not his ethnicity. Yeah. But I don't know, man. I think the reason I make that joke is like, I think a lot of this stuff will, will weed itself out, right? To me, yeah. a lot of those conversations are not serious arguments. Um, and, and it bothers me if, if we only dwell on that as opposed to like, well, what are the commonalities and similarities and how do we move on together? Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you know, your storyline and your experience has, has so many sort of surprise shifts and angles and, and textures and contours to it. It, it. it sort of makes it so refreshingly nonlinear in that Ooh. way. Your acting career, your transition to work with, with then-Senator and, and then, of course, President Obama, the memoir, it, it, it makes me wonder, are you someone who actively seeks change? Do you actively seek out shape-shifting? Or do you actually think about risk with more of the optimism and hope than perhaps there? And maybe that's something that's evolved for you. Yeah, I, I, I can't really speak to other folks. So to maybe unfair for me to compare myself because I, I, I don't know. But um, I, I enjoy having varied interests. And I think, um, but I think, you, you know, you understand that if you're going to do something, it does come with a with a risk assessment, right? I mean, when I took a two and a half year sabbatical to, to work at the White House, that was with the, the clear risk assessment of the longer you stay out of the acting game, the tougher it is for you to continue the momentum that you've spent 15 years building. So that's a real thing, but yeah. you have to, you know, you got to take that into account. Same thing with like, you know, I, I spent five years doing a grad program that should have taken a year and a half maybe. <laughs> Um, right. just cause I really wanted to do it. And yeah. so like, you know, I think the first time I talked about it was in the book, even like it's yeah. in international security. It has nothing to do with my right. acting career, but I wanted to do it. So why not? So I think, yeah, there's, you know, the, the idea that, that, uh, that you could have multiple passions or interests, but also, you know, talk about whether that there are financial risks, whether they're job risks, family risks, all of that stuff. Those are all obviously things to consider. For, for you, though, I mean, is that something that, that you've been passionate enough about to say that, like, yes, this is a risk worth taking, whereas people with other passions may not necessarily take those risks all the time, depending at the point, their lives, their own calculations, sure, yeah. et cetera, you know? Well, I mean, there are plenty of there are plenty of choices that I've or things I've decided not to do as well. Right. right so right. that's true. So I think we always focus on, well, how did you decide to do this? But like, all right, well, yeah. what about all the stuff? And I was like, no, that I didn't. Right. It's not the right time. I shouldn't do this. All of that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Like, you know, not, not necessarily like the things you've passed on, the things that you haven't yeah. necessarily done. Yeah. That's always there. 
one one final thought in thinking about this. You you've been among the people tapped to guest host the the Daily Show, which is just sweet. Rad is the word that I would use from you know in my right my day. Yeah, which is yet another of your expressions into kind of the American cultural zeitgeist, right? If someone catches you there, perhaps, and they're seeing your work for the very first time, mm. how do you hope to make them feel, both as an artist and as an Indian American? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I'm so excited and honored to guest host The Daily Show. I mean, I'm, I, I've been a fan since, what, the first season with Craig Kilborn came out when I was like 18 or something, that's right? right, yeah. Um, so that's awesome. I, I, and I, what I love about the show is the satire and the humor and all of that. So that's my hope for anybody who, who watches my episodes is I hope I make you laugh and learn a little something and, um, and, and feel like you are a bit more connected with uh, what's happening in the world. Well, you're making so many people laugh and learn and be a part of your world. Cal, thank you so much for joining. What a treat. I hope we can do this again at some point. I hope so too. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much, Cal. And please check out his book, You Can't Be Serious, which is available everywhere. I have to also give a huge shout out to my man Suki at Sugar Daddy's Cane Juice on Kaonohi Street near Honolulu in Oahu. Trust me, outside of the motherland, the absolute best sugar cane juice you'll ever have. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar.